Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And of course, this is the uh, first day of Reconciliation Week. It starts on National Sorry Day. That's today, Saturday the 26th and finishes on June the 3rd, which is Mabo Day. And if you want to be part of uh, reconciliation, you could go down to the Atherton Gardens corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Street in Fitzroy at 3pm, and they say 3pm sharp, going to 5.30pm. It's got a special event, and it will include ceremony, guest speakers, Uncle Jack Charles, Muriel Bramblett, and Ian Ham and performances by Deborah Cheatham, Kutcher Edwards, Ilana Atkinson, Jury Jury Dance Group, Jindal Warwick Dancers, Kuri Youth Will Shakespeare's Dance Group, and refreshments will be provided. Uh, this is a Yarra Council acknowledgement of National Sorry Day, so you might be interested in that. Uh, there's going to be uh, uh, devoted programming on 3CR after this program at 9.30 going to 12 to uh, commemorate National Sorry Day but also to enliven people's uh, interest in Reconciliation Week and uh, you might also like to put on your calendar on uh Sunday the 3rd of June at 12pm at Federation Square there's going to be a, a, a celebration of Mabo Day. And uh, it's uh, also a commemoration of uh, Alan Jose uh, and a part of the Alan Jose Memorial Foundation. There, uh, Alan died on the 2nd of June 2017, one day before the 25th anniversary of the historic High Court judgment delivered on the 3rd of June 1992 and you'll remember this was uh, the important uh, legal precedent that uh, acknowledged that Australia was not Toronolius when the Europeans arrived and this is the thing that we commemorate on Mabo Day Uh, and that's uh, going to be at uh, Federation Square at 12pm. They're also uh, uh, asking you to join them on that same day at 2pm to 5pm at the Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, which is 110 Grey Street, East Melbourne, if you aren't aware of it, for an afternoon of music, singing, conversation and afternoon tea to celebrate the 26th 
anniversary of Mabo Day. And these are the most important days that uh, for Australians to uh, involve themselves in, I'd say. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd. Tickets available through tickyboo.com.au. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR support. You might be aware that uh, there's a momentous uh, vote going on at the moment in Ireland and it is around abortion rights. Uh, it's about the repealing of a Eighth Amendment that they've got in their constitution which gives equal right to life to mother and the unborn child and was inserted into the constitution in a referendum in 1983. And uh, the vote started uh, there about half or oh, ten hours or so behind us and uh, they uh, started their voting uh, on Friday and it uh, um, went on until 10pm and they're scheduled to start counting at 9am on Saturday so it's later in the day that we'll hear the results but uh, there's been a 70% uh, turnout for this vote uh, across the country and uh, which is uh, even more than the amount of people that came out for the uh, uh, marriage equality vote that they had uh, uh, not so long ago. So it's quite interesting. And one of the 3CR reporters from uh, Women on the Line is actually involved in the campaigning over there, and she sent us a report that gives us background to the whole of this a momentous occasion. I'm Aoife Cook. I live in Melbourne and I volunteer with 3CR Community Radio. I've travelled to Ireland for May, where I'm originally from, to support the repeal of the Eighth Amendment and the Together for Yes campaign. I've been working on with canvassing groups around the country, helping to coordinate from the head office, and also working to support local groups around the country with resources, support and communications. I'm Claire Brophy. I'm one of the team of people working on Together for Yes, which is uh, the campaign for a yes vote in a referendum um, in Ireland on the 25th of May. So we want a yes, which means we want to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Irish Constitution. Okay, what's the Eighth Amendment in detail? So the Eighth Amendment uh, was inserted into the Constitution in 1983 by referendum. And what it states is that the life of the unborn is equal to the the right to life of the mother um, and that its right to life will be vindicated as as practicable um, by law in Ireland. So basically it means that as soon as a woman becomes pregnant in Ireland, her life is equalised with the implanted embryo with the fetus inside her. It means that abortion is illegal in almost every circumstance in Ireland and a lot of people have died because of the Eighth Amendment since 1983. We know of a lot of names, like Savita Halepanavar is probably the most famous. People like Bimbo Onanuga, Dara Kivlihan, um, Margaret Y was a really famous case where a woman was actually detained in the country because she didn't have the, the papers to travel abroad for an abortion and uh, she was actually 
restrained and forcibly hydrated and kept pregnant until they delivered by C-section against her will. And that only happened in 2014. So as it stands, we can't legalise any kind of abortion law in Ireland until the Eighth Amendment is repealed. So that's what we're doing. So when you say that women are dying and pregnant people are dying, you're talking about a legal situation where the right to life of the fetus is equal to the woman. Why why are women dying in that context if there's an equal right to life? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting this is normal. It's pretty unusual. But what's act- I suppose what I'm wondering is what's actually happening on the yeah. ground, if you could explain that. Of course, yeah. Well, it's a completely unique constitutional situation. There's nothing like it in any other constitution in the world. Um, And the reason that people are dying is because in a situation where um, a woman goes into distress or a woman's health is at risk, um, doctors cannot do anything to to rescue or to to treat the woman's health if she's pregnant in case the the healthcare might intrude on the the welfare of the fetus. So it happened in the case of a woman called Michelle Hart um, who had cancer. She was going through um, cancer treatment and when she found out she was pregnant, they discontinued her cancer treatment because of the Eighth Amendment, because it would have impacted negatively on the health of the fetus. Um, and she wanted to travel for an abortion. Unfortunately, she couldn't get to it in time, um, and she died. And so, um, time, of course, is it's a really time-sensitive issue. Abortion, you know, as soon as a person has chosen an abortion, they tend to want to do it as fast as possible. Um, and the only way legally to do it is to travel. Um, so in 1992 in Ireland, there was a referendum to allow people the right to travel. Before that, we didn't even have that right. Um, and that was because of a case called the X case, um, where a 12-year-old girl who was the victim of rape um, became suicidal as a result um, of being pregnant um, after the rape. Um, and the courts... Um, decided that she had a right to abortion because her her life was at risk, um, not just her health. And and that is where it supersedes. So it's just, it's a, a complete legal quagmire. It's really difficult for doctors to know when the balance from a woman's health being at risk turns to her life being at risk. And we're talking immediate risk, and that's the yes. complication here. Exactly, yeah. So... Um, it, it's it's up to the doctor or the team of doctors to decide exactly at what point. But it, it has happened and it will continue to happen that doctors don't know um, when that, that line is or when that balance is and, and they can't do anything um, and people are dying because of it. So the Eighth Amendment also affects maternity services um, and wanted pregnancies that aren't related to abortion. What issues come up in those cases? Um, It affects uh, wanted pregnancies in the situations where um, a person who's pregnant has a diagnosis of a fatal fetal abnormality. So that abnormality means that the fetus won't survive beyond birth. It's basically a situation where the woman's body is a life support machine. Um, And typically those kinds of diagnoses only happen after about 20 weeks, give or take. And so... For some people, and it's not all people, but a lot of people in those situations just find it very difficult to continue with a pregnancy after that, especially um, a lot of these people already have kids, and we know a lot of, like, more than 50% of people who have abortions already have children. 
But for fatal fetal abnormality, just the, the continuation of the pregnancy can be really emotionally draining, um, especially if people are asking them excitedly, when, when are you due? And they kind of have to, to just shake their heads and say, no, this isn't, this isn't how this looks. Um, so they want um, abortion access, and they can't do it in Ireland. So <clears throat> we know there's a group now here called Terminations for Medical Reasons, and those groups um, are populated, a lot of couples um, who've the experience of having travelled to England and have had abortions there. And the English Health Service have been fantastic and have taken care of those people when Irish, the health service just couldn't because of the Eighth Amendment. Um, but what's really tragic is the stories that they tell of having to bring the remains of their loved and wanted um, babies back um, by courier or in, in cooler boxes with boxes of like, frozen peas around them um, on the ferry. And it's just absolutely, it's, it's barbaric. And there's absolutely no reason for it. We, absolutely, we have the medical care here. It's just a, the legal issue is, is the, the stalling point, And that's why we can't provide that treatment here. And I know a lot of doctors say that um, a lot of the the laws don't make any medical sense, but their hands are tied by the constitution, Mm -hmm. a pretty unusual situation. Exactly, yeah. It's it's a completely bizarre uh, legal situation. And no doctors should have to be poring over legal documents when they're trying to figure out how best to treat a person whose health is deteriorating really, really quickly. Um, Doctors who treated Savita have said that... um, had the Eighth Amendment not been in place, they would have been able to to give her the abortion that she asked for um, and that the sepsis um, would not have set in, that she would have survived. So if you could just, I mean, many people around the world did hear the case of Savita Halep-Navar, but maybe if you could give an overview, um, you've suggested that she passed away due to sepsis um, after requests for termination were refused? Yes, yeah. So she, uh, Savita was a woman, she was a dentist. She was born in India and she lived in Galway with her husband Praveen. In the west of Ireland? Uh, yeah, sorry, in the west, yeah. The other side of the country from Ireland, which is not that far. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they had a very wanted pregnancy and then at 17 weeks, which I think is about 15 weeks gestation, her cervix opened, um, which... Um, meant her waters broke um, when she was uh, brought into the hospital because there was still a fatal or sorry because there was still a fetal heartbeat they couldn't do anything and she at that stage understood she's she had a medical background she understood um, and they asked can you perform an abortion because they understood the dangers of infection and they were refused and what you mentioned there is something that I think is hard for people with more practical access to healthcare to um, understand. You know, not all of Australia, but most of Australia, we have um, these questions don't come up. It's not mm-hmm. part of the constitution, even though access can be complicated in certain places. But in Ireland, the key, key criteria is the fetal heartbeat. Yeah. That seems to be the, the be all and end all. And that's, that seems to be what doctors look for um as a as a measure for life but i mean in that situation there's no question that a fatal or sorry, a fetal heartbeat um didn't equal the life that Savita had and the the rights that she had and it just goes to show the damage that the eighth amendment had because it it superseded her other rights or other human rights and her right to health care and her right to be respected and her right to dignity um, and so it, it all comes back to the eighth amendment I and mean, this is 
um, an amendment that was put into the Constitution at a really dark time in Irish history. Um, and uh, legal experts who were involved in its insertion in 1983 have since said that it was a mistake. Um, and so the only way forward now and the only way that Ireland can even begin to, to gain that ground and just to come up to the standard level of abortion access globally and in Europe is to repeal it. So we spoke a bit about some of the really complicated um, pregnancies that people can have when um, under the Eighth Amendment, but we know, of course, that the majority of issues around abortion accidents are not wanted pregnancies that are ending tragically. And I suppose I just wanted to ask about um, if you could speak about where um, how people are having abortions, the non-legal side of things, you know, what's actually happening. Yeah, so, I mean, at the moment, there's two ways in Ireland that people are having abortions. Either they're booking flights to England or the Netherlands um, and going. And that's a lot to do with... It's a class issue because that's... Can you afford flights? Do you have a passport? Uh, can you afford childcare for the two days that you might be away? Can you get time off work? Do you have a visa? Exactly. Do you have a visa? Um, and visas take a long time. Bureaucracy uh, here is slow. Um, <clears throat> and how many people are travelling? Um, at the moment, the figure is 10 people per day from Ireland. Um, and so it's something that just comes into my head every time I'm in the airport looking around. Um, I'm lucky that I've never had to go through it myself, but I'm really conscious now. I can't get out of my mind that looking around, there's people, and it's it's not it's not just young people. A lot of these people are people who have three or four children or have as many children as they want, and they know that this is absolutely what they have to do. So it's really... Um, it's really hard. Um, the other option for people, if they can't travel, is the illegal option, which is the abortion pills. They are a really safe medicine. They're on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines, but in Ireland they are illegal because they are abortion pills. Um, and so the prison sentence uh, for uh, administering those pills, for procuring them for someone else or for taking them, is 14 years in prison. And that's from a law that was brought into Ireland in 2014. Um, before that, we d depended on the 1861 uh, law, the C Offences Against the Person Act, um, which was life in prison, so 14 years. They, they thought that was a nice step down. Um, and those pills are accessed um, online. People place the orders. Um, because they're illegal, they can't, they can't come through their postal system, so people get them sent uh, to Northern Ireland, which... Um, I'm, I'm not sure if people know, but it's a different legal jurisdiction. It's part of the United Kingdom um, and Northern Ireland. So um, they get sent there and then they get brought down um, however they can be brought. And people take them uh, in, their, um, in their bathrooms and their bedrooms alone. Um, and of course there are issues with people ordering pills that turn out to be paracetamol or something, there's issues with the postal system arriving and really it's also about fear and stigma and you know the rare but possible circumstances where something can go wrong, what are the issues there? Exactly, well I mean because it's illegal um, if someone is scared they can't go to a doctor because they're terrified that they might be arrested and um, they're terrified that in some situations they might be deported. You know, a lot of people's um, situations here are precarious, um, and particularly if the 
the, a large proportion of the people who need access to these pills desperately are people who don't have access to to visas. Um, another um, another issue is just uh, Peter Boylan. He's he's an, an obstetrician and gynaecologist who worked in Ireland for forty years. He's just retired, but he keeps saying that uh, one day we're, we're going to wake up to a news story of a, a girl or a woman who's bled to death on her bathroom floor. Um, because of taking those pills, because uh, without they are really safe, but without doctor supervision, any medicine isn't safe, you know. And these these people just the idea that they can't just talk to a doctor or just ask, um, it's really humiliating for such a serious issue. Yeah, absolutely. So you have been involved in the abortion rights campaign for years, and you're now part of the national campaign at Together for Yes. Can you tell me your own, uh, where your own interest and your trajectory of your activism, how it developed? <clears throat> God. Um, a summary is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started um, in ARC years ago because of a really, really horrible poster campaign put on by the uh, anti-choice side. Um, a group who we now know are extremely um, fundamentalist Christian group. Um, but I just, I saw it and I just found it really offensive. And I, I knew of a friend who had recently gone through it and I just thought that's absolute nonsense. It makes me so angry and I wanted to do something. So we did. We set up the abortion rights campaign. Describe the posters. Um, it was pictures of um, what turned out to be a Swedish photographer who had done them as a sort of an art thing, but they'd been co-opted by this group um, of fetuses uh, in utero and of, of very sad looking women saying abortion tears her life apart. And then for the fetus ones, uh, just said abortion tears my life apart. And it was apropos of nothing. I don't think at any time there was anything politically happening around abortion law. Um, but it was a big mistake because they actually, they mobilised so many people like myself who just saw them and thought, who the hell are you to be telling people and judging people and trying to make them feel shame for a, a situation that nobody really wants to go through? I mean, nobody thinks they're going to be in A&E on Christmas Day, but someone is. So just have some compassion. Just let people do what they got to do. So you spent years with the abortion rights campaign. What type of work were you doing and what are you doing now here at Together for Yes? Uh, I've floated around ARC. I've done loads of different things. I was in the media group for a while. I worked on social media. That was really interesting. I was in uh, policy and advocacy. So um, I uh, worked on kind of political kind of um, papers and submissions to political bodies. We went to the European Parliament um, in uh, Brussels, uh, that was great, um, and made some really great contacts. We so much international solidarity; it's really, really encouraging. Like, it really, really does help to know. Yeah, actually, we're not imagining it. it just isn't normal here. It's not okay. Um, what else? I've done um, admin work, which is really nice when you just don't feel like um, doing all the kind of front-facing stuff. Um, and then actions is really, it's good as well. It's a kind of non-violent direct action, holding space, protests, demos. Um, I tend to always have the megaphone at the March for Choice, which I really <laughs> love, and there's something I really love about filling the streets of Dublin with echoing women's voices and just, like, filling up the city, like, the okay. whole town with women, happy, like, defiant yes, we're here and we're going to keep going and we're going to be here. And the March for Choice is going to keep going um, this September. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few days, but in September we'll be out there and we'll be fighting to defend this stuff. 
until, God, for as long as I'm here, I'll be defending it. So the March for Choice is an annual march on the streets of Dublin, the capital. Mm -hmm. Um, It happens on the day of international... What is it? Legalization of Abortion Day. Yes, uh, absolutely. At the end of September every year. Every year the march has gotten bigger and bigger. Yeah. Give us an example of some of the chants. <laughs> I'll pull the mic back. Hold on. <laughs> no, I'm not going to um, Well, it used to be Get Your Rosaries Off My Ovaries was a really good old one. But uh, in recent times, we're trying to get more uh, kind of less religious because they're, they're hiding their uh, religiosity really well. Um, Hey, hey, ho, ho. The eighth man's got to go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so the abortion rights <laughs> campaign is one of three groups that have come together now in yeah. the run-up to the referendum. The National Women's Council of Ireland, the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment, which is made up of, I think, 80 groups, if I'm correct, of different uh, groups and pro-choice groups that have come together, and the abortion rights campaign being the grassroots abortion focus group that's been running for about six years. So we have the three groups together have a head office in the middle of Dublin city centre we're now how many days to the referendum three we are (laughs) three days to the referendum we're recording this on um, I don't even know what day it is Tuesday Tuesday in Ireland the referendum which would be Tuesday night in Australia referendum is going to be on Friday what work are you doing here how do you feel how's it going are we going to win Ooh. Uh, well, the work I'm doing at the moment, uh, it's called regional mobilisation. So I'm in touch with a lot of the groups in um, rural places or in smaller cities around Ireland, just checking in with them, making sure they have everything they need, their canvassing is going okay, leafleting, that they're not getting too uh, harassed, um, that they're just feeling feeling good and just like giving them a bit of support because it's really emotional work that we're doing. Um, I was out on the road tour around Ireland. We drove... <laughs> this will make Australians laugh... We drove around the country a couple times, and our mileage was um, 4,675 kilometres, which we were really proud of. I don't know match up. Yeah. So we're roughly talking the geography of Victoria, just for those of you who don't know. Uh, you managed to hit every county in Ireland? Yeah, we hit every county, and that was great. And it actually did me good. It was really positive to just meet a lot of just like phenomenally hardworking, deadly people um, around the place. Um, I am realistic, but I'm really hopeful. Um, this week has been good because we're all on a kind of an adrenaline rush. Um, and I think we're going to win. Say it again later. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm not sure. But I think, I think, I think we're going to win. We're in an unbelievably tough context, but there's definitely a yeah. serious but solid optimism around together for us headquarters. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't even, I, I try not, I try to tell myself it's not optimism. I try to tell myself that it's realism, that I'm, I'm really objectively trying to read, uh, because we're also in our bubbles. I'm asking my sister, like, uh, is it in, is it all over your Twitter feed? Is it all over your Facebook feed? And she's like, yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> and everyone is voting. Everyone I know is voting yes. Um, so... Until the election is, or sorry, the referendum is on Friday, and then um, it closed, the post goes at 10 p.m., and all day Saturday we're going to be at the count centres with our hearts in our mouths, just hoping, waiting to hear. But I am conservatively hopeful. I just, as well, like, I just don't, I can't imagine the alternative. It, it means so much more than just the Eighth Amendment to pass this. It means so much more. There's been such a sad history of treatment 
of women in Ireland. And even in the last few days, news here has been really bad. Um, the cervical smear, there's been a murder and um, there's been a sexual assault of a 16-year-old just in the last two days, the news. Um, and I just think that this referendum is now almost like a, a reparative exercise that we can go, we can change it, we can change history, we can make it good and we can kind of look back and say, sorry, this ever happened. This never should have been the way it was for you. And we're, we're going to make it better. We're going to make it better. We're going to make history we're proud of. Thank you. Thanks. Can you introduce yourself now? Hey, y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Three CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've just been listening to a report from Ireland about the uh, momentous uh, anti-abortion, or, well, anti, uh, well, pro-abortion, really, a poll that's been... asking people if they want to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which gives equal rights to life to the mother and the unborn child. Uh, And uh, the yes vote would uh, pave the way for laws legalising abortion up to 12 weeks into a pregnancy and in more limited circumstances thereafter. Now, uh, analysts say a high turnout, and there has been a high turnout, 70% of people who are on registered to vote, and that's 3.3 million citizens are registered to vote. Uh, 70%, which is uh, in some areas, which is higher than the uh, rate that was uh, uh, seen for the uh, marriage equality referendum. Uh, the analysts are saying a high turnout, particularly in urban areas, is likely to favour a yes vote because they're about 10 years, uh, sorry, 10 years, <laughs> probably more, uh, 10 hours behind us. We will be uh, he- seeing the result later in the day. Uh, so this, they started uh, counting at 9am Irish time on Saturday, today. Anyway, we're going to go to a Burwood now, the Burwood Highway. Uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union went to the offices of Julia Banks, the uh, LMP uh, federal uh, representative of Chisholm, who uh, in or in judiciously... Uh, pronounced on radio that she felt that uh, the New Start allowance was completely fine and that she herself could uh, live on $40 a day. The uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union went there to ask her for a few tips about how she would do that and uh, 
found that the door was barred. Anyway, this is what happened. I'm outside the uh, uh, office of Julia Banks, MP, Federal Minister, uh, Member for Chisholm, Federal Member for Chisholm, a woman who's made herself known for her pronouncement that uh, she could live on $40 a day, like a new start recipient. The Unemployed Workers Union have come here to uh, ask her for some advice about how it was how it was done. And you've got your Liberal uh, candidate for this area, uh, state candidate for this area. So, you know, we were uh, where I'm from, Chadston, Jordanville area. It was a very working class sort of battlers area once, and now because of all the gentrification in the area, it's become more of a Liberal voters, wealthier person sort of area. So, what do you reckon about? Uh Ms Banks and her statement that she could live on $40 a day? Well, I mean, she is a corporate lawyer, of course, and she, she is a corporate lawyer and she has five or six investment properties and, of course, what she's being paid as a federal parliamentarian, she's not exactly on Struggle Street, is she? I don't think she'd have a hope in hell of surviving on $40 a day. Um, doesn't live in the electorate, lives in Malvern, and which you would realise is a very upmarket area. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to see her, not for a, a week or a month even, try and survive on $40 a day. Let her do it for six or 12 months and see how she, she goes, you know. Um, I'm just sort of very peed off at the way things are going in this country, you know. At the moment, housing affordability, lack of public housing being built. Um, you know, I work in the aged care sector for more than 20 years now and I see what goes on there, you know, and it just seems that if you're doing it tough in this country, these people will do all their, their, their very best to make it even tougher for you, you know, so. This is your electorate? Yeah, I, I live in Chisholm, yeah, I've lived here all my life in Chadston. As I say, with all the gentrification that's gone in, on in the last probably 15 to 20 years, it's become more of an upmarket sort of area for the, the better off, you know. Or aspirants, people who don't mm. like to feel that yeah. they've got a bit of poverty on their shoes. Yep, aspirants, that's, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, I don't think this particular person would have a clue, really, you know. She, uh, uh, you know, has obviously come from quite a, quite a privileged background and, you know, they're completely out of touch with reality, I feel. You know, so I'm, I've just come along to lend whatever support I can today. You know, thanks very much. You know, you're welcome. We start the rally by going into Julie Banks's office, all of us, and then showing that we're here to present the budgets and we want um, an explanation for what she's said in the media about how she can live on forty dollars a day. And then we'll see what kind of reaction we get. Hey, Jarvis. All good. All good. Explain. I know you guys have
City, but then, well, look, uh, marvellous Melbourne in the 1880s was a wonderful city, but then boom came bust. And in the 1890s, the unemployed became a real problem in marvellous Melbourne because they came to offices like this, their parliamentarians' offices, they broke into the churches, they demanded food, they demanded to be treated with respect. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And what happened? Well, in the 1890s, the unemployed were given free land. They were given five acres of land in the Dandenong Ranges, which was uninhabitable, or French Island. So they got rid of their unemployment problem. Now, we've become a bit more sophisticated as time rolls on, and that sophistication is based on the idea that we have a compact. We are all members of one community, which is the Australian community. We're either residents or we're citizens. We are members of this society and the compact that has occurred across the West is very simple. That you look after the basic needs of those people in our society who for a variety of reasons, whether it's inability to find work, whether it's through illness, whether it's through old age, you look after their needs. And why do you look after their needs? It's social security. It is security for the whole of society. If you have a large group of people, and we are having a large group of people, who find that they cannot survive in this society, not only do you have an increase in crime, but you have an increase in social dislocation. You have an increase in personal unhappiness, increase in sickness. And so the whole of society loses. And to keep the New Start allowance at this ridiculous rate means that we all lose. And we have forgotten what our parents and grandparents have struggled for for the last 100 years, to create a society where each and every individual is looked after. This woman in here and her pecuniary interests, she's not unusual. She's part of that new class in Australia, the investment class, which is used, which is about 8% of the population, which has used this country's investment-friendly laws to enrich themselves while denigrating those people who find themselves in difficult situations, denigrating them publicly on a daily basis by using the term welfare, as if you are doling out some food, the dole. That's what the dole is, doling out a bit of charity. Welfare, we give you this. And what, it's not a matter of welfare, this is a contract. This is a contract in our society. Social security is a contract. It's a contract between each and every individual, our institutions, our courts, our government. That's what that contract is. 
That's what it's about. That's what social security is about, is to create a secure society by looking after the needs of each and every individual. And to marginalise, to criminalise individuals because through no fault of their own find themselves in difficult situations economically is a crime. It is a crime against humanity. It is a crime against what we as Australians stand for. So these people are basically criminals because they say they can survive on $40 a day. They can't survive on $40 a day. It's not about going and having a three-course meal for $40 a day. You have to find accommodation. You have to clean your clothes. You have to wash yourself. You have to look after your children if you've got responsibilities for children. You have to buy toilet paper. You have to see the doctor. You have, you may have other, you have to buy your medicines. Even although you've got a concession card, they are still a significant impact on individuals. So what we see here is criminal behaviour, not just by Julia Banks. She was just stupid enough to actually say what she believed in. Most politicians, most people in authority, most corporate leaders aren't that stupid. They've got PR experts working for them. And they know that what is happening is unsustainable. It's intolerable, it is unfair, and it's time that we, as a nation, brought an end to this horrendous situation, which affects millions of Australians. 33% of Australians rely on Social Security benefits to survive. One in three. One in three. Oh, one in three. One in three. One in three. 8%, like Julia Banks, has a portfolio of houses, gets 15% superannuation, holiday pay, staff. It is totally untenable. And we need to remember our history. We are not individuals. We are part of a community each and every one of us. And every time we step over a homeless man or woman, every time we turn our heads away, what we are doing is we're abrogating our responsibility as human beings in this society. And I'm nearly 70. And if you told me 50 years ago that we would be still fighting these same struggles, that we would have poverty in this country, which is a rich country, 25 million people on a bloody continent, not people in Bangladesh who've just accepted a million refugees, and we can't even accept a few people from Manus Island and Nauru, but 25 million people on a continent, and we can't even look after the basic needs of those who find themselves in the most difficult situation. Look, I've been a doctor for 43 years, and if it wasn't for the public health system, and if it wasn't for public housing, and if it wasn't for the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, many of my patients would have died before now. Many of them would have had and terrible lives. Shame. And to see that, and to see that occurring again in this society where our political representatives, that's their job, they represent the people, are willing to ignore the pleas of one third of the population and those people who support them, and there are many Australians who support them, is, is criminal. So I'd, I'd like to thank you for thank coming. And that's the key, is the fact is you came, you cared, you made time in your busy day to come here, to this suburb, to this person's office, who is a political representative, who gets paid for representing the people of Chisholm, who doesn't have even the decency to accept 
a piece of paper from the unemployed persons union, you know, who has no respect for Australians who find themselves in difficult situations. This highlights the lack of respect for us as individuals and as citizens. It would take nothing for them to open that door and accept the petition instead of calling the police like they did. It would take nothing for them to do that. This is not some violent rabble. These are people who are looking for a little bit of justice in our society. And it, yeah, is, yeah. it is criminal. This is criminal behaviour. They get paid for representing us across the country, in the, in the Senate and the House of Representatives, and they even refuse to accept a petition, a simple statement from people who find themselves in difficulty. It's horrendous. It really is horrendous. And that's all I can say. And unless we have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people saying that this is unacceptable, this will continue because it fits their worldview. They are the ones who deserve the gravy. They deserve the honey. And everybody else has to fight for the crumbs which are swept off the corporate table. It just shows you the other contempt that these people have for, for anyone that's doing it tough. doesn't matter if it's the elderly, the young, the homeless. A absolute contempt that they have. And I feel ashamed to have somebody like this as my so-called so federal representative. I've never, I live in Chadston in the sort of Ashwood, Jordanville, Chadston area. I've never seen her once in our area. Never once. I think she's more in the elite, elite part of the electorate. Spends most of her time there. Absolute contempt that she has for people like us. You know? 40 bucks a day. Julie, Julie show, us show us the way. way. 40 bucks a day. Julie, Julie show, show us the way. way. 40 bucks a day. Julie, show us the way. 40 bucks a day. Julie, show us the way. All right, I've got some... Uh... Some information here I'd like to share with you all and with Julie. Owen Bennett from the Australian Unemployed so, Workers Union. Here's firstly, Owen. let's thank Joe for the, thank a terrific speech. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. And I echo his sentiments. It's a complete disgrace. They've shut this door. They've locked us out because they can't deal with the reality of what unemployment is. They don't want to hear from us. They don't want to hear about it. They want us to just disappear and die in the streets. That's basically their approach to unemployed workers in this country. And I've got a, about 50 stories of unemployed workers who wanted to present their budgets to Julia Banks today, but they've been locked out. So I'm going to relay their thoughts to Ms Banks. So we've got Sarah from Queensland, who has to pay $450 of her dole on accommodation every fortnight. That's more than half of her, of her money on accommodation. She says, I received $687 on Newstar. Clearly, this does not cover my expenses. Where do you, Ms. Banks, suggest that I cut down on costs? Should I minimise on fuel, telephone and internet costs, all of which I need to pay in order to meet my job search requirements? Or should I cut my meals down from two per day to one? Cherry from Queensland says, I would like to tell her she needs to buy a calculator. Rodney from New South Wales says, Should I stop feeding my children, cut electricity, or should I just ignore health issues to afford life? Oh, I just realised, none of that works. 
I still can't afford to live. I guess the only option is live in a tent. But then I have to worry about police or security moving me along because homeless people make the scenery look bad. So I guess I should ask, where should I pitch my tent so I can avoid being dragged out of it along with my children by police? This is the reality of people living on the dole. Robin from Queensland says, I'm angry with her and all the others who reckon it's real easy living on Newstart, waiting for disability to be stabilised. She has no idea. She has never had to choose between buying food or medicine or fuel for the car to attend mandatory appointments. 300 kilometres round trip. You need roadworthy registered vehicle plus fuel. No money for that. These are people who have been forced to live on Newstart on average for four years. That's the average time people spend on Newstart in this country. And it's not because they want to, they want a job. That's right, and that's, be that's because there are 15 people competing for every job vacancy going by our current ABS statistics, and yet they force people to live on a payment that's $350 per fortnight below the poverty line. So if you add that all up, you've got people who want work, but there's no work there because there's 15 times more people looking for jobs than there are jobs. And then those same people are then being told it's their fault they can't get work, so they have to go on a payment that's so far below the poverty line they can't afford to eat. And they have to be on that payment for four years, and then they get the indignity of being told it's their fault because they can't get work. This is the reality that we live in. And then we go and tell our member, Banks, that we want her to explain her comments that she can live on $40 a day, and they lock the door. This is a perfect symbol for the way unemployed workers are treated in this country. And that's why it's so great that people have come here today to let her know that we're not going to accept this anymore. We're going to keep coming here and we're going to keep telling banks that we want her to explain how she expects us to believe she can live on 40 bucks a day. Because there are so many stories in here of people who cannot live on 40 bucks a day. Deborah from Queensland says, at 56 I have to share my rent. I cannot work and I'm waiting to find out if my application for DSP will be approved. Even with sharing, I cannot meet my bills. My rent gets paid and after that I rob Peter to pay Paul. My medication and doctor's bills are the next priority and everything else is negotiated. Angela from South Australia says, I would like to know how she thinks it's easy done most nights as I starve so my children can eat from school foods, fruit, veg and meat I can't afford to eat myself. My child has to miss out on school excursions because I can't afford to pay for them. After my bills, rent, food, shopping, I am left with no money. Nicole from South Australia says, I moved back home with my parents so that I could save for a house of my own. How do you suggest I afford one when I don't have enough to live on, let alone enough to put aside money with the cost of living? I am disabled and work as much as I can. I shop cheaply for clothing and have reduced my cost as much as I can. There's endless amounts of stories here. We want to let Miss Banks know about it, but she's locked us out. So, who else would like to talk about their experience of living on Newstart? Anyone else? Would you, would you like to say a few words, Paul? Yes, I... I've got, a one, I've got a one and a half year old daughter, okay, and it's myself, Newstart. I've basically got to go to the Salvation Army. They give me twenty dollar voucher, right, per well, week. Big deal. They're not, yeah, I know. And <laughs> then it's four year cost money, child support, everything else comes into play. That's food. I have to go to different charities. Why should I have to do that? 
Why can't job networks help people get jobs? In your age, in your age. Yeah. But even young people. But how many like you that? Well, where do you start? And the thing is, my daughter, I make sure she gets fed. Sometimes I don't. I have to beg. I don't like to beg to the Salvation Army or St. Vincent's. And St. Vincent's are terrible when they come to my house. They're terrible the way they talk to me. How do they talk to you? Oh, they're like, you know, oh, that's a nice car you got. I said, yeah, I used to be successful once. Not anymore. So it's like some charities judge you on appearance and what you might want to have had. But I think when you look at it, the new start has not been raised, what, for 20 years? 24 years, give or take. It's ridiculous. And my daughter, I mean, sometimes I've had to feed her the shittest formula, pardon me for the French, and, but I've had to make sure that she's fed first. And that's not fair to beg for a kid, you know what I mean? That's why I'm here today, anyway. What would you say to banks? If she, she came out right now, what would you say to I'd her? say to her basically the same thing and probably a few more other things regarding, you know, sticking up for people who are unemployed, maybe, you know, get back the CES that used to be around because the job networks, they don't do anything to help people. They own nothing. Nothing. They don't care about profits. That's it. She's locked the door on you, Paul. She's locked the door on you. 40 bucks a day. Julie, show us the way. 40 bucks a day. Julie, show us the way. 40 bucks a day. Julie, show us the way. 40 bucks a day. Julie, show us the way. I've got some more stories. Hi, Marin Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the leader of the free world abandoned his proposed meeting with evil North Korea because the bloke with the silly haircut, the evil North Korean one, had said nasty, hurtful things like complaining that after it destroyed a nuclear site and handed over U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world prisoners and other concessions, the U.S. of conducted trained killer exercises on its border, practicing invading it, and said if evil North Korea didn't stop being evil, Kim Il would be Kim Illa, as he copped what Qaddafi copped in Libya, and Donald and his bomb the whole world advisor John Beltham and Vice Supremo Mike Dollars and Pence couldn't understand how evil North Korea could be upset by little matters like practicing to invade it and threatening to murder Kim Illa. So Donald, the uncrowned Nobel Peace Prize laureate, had no choice but to confirm his consistency, consistently erratic, although surely they could have got together if for no other purpose than to compare notes about their hairdressers. And slight warning to Donald and John and Mike. We mentioned this last week, but they seem to have forgotten that the US of has always vehemently denied having anything to do with overthrowing Qaddafi and making then evil Libya the peaceful united dystopia it now is. And Donald warned if evil North Korea did not denuclearize, destroy its skyrockets, he would hit it with the biggest, most destructive nuclear arsenal in the world. Good, good. Uh, yes, Donald, how come you can have most of the nuclear weapons in the world and, and they can't have any? Because ours are good, good, safe, safe. Theirs are evil, evil, unsafe, unsafe. Good to know there's such a thing as a safe nuclear weapon, and it's true, it's true, because wait just a couple of thousand years and the area could be safe again. 
back here after those evil union officials had their cases withdrawn during the committal hearing, bringing the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Smash the Union's Trillion Dollar Royal Commission success score to all of zero, the lawlessness of the evil unions forced former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Erica Betts on the bosses and his successor as Minister for Michaelia Koch the Workers to warn Vote Socialist and John Setka, the face of union evil, painted by Lord Rupert of Wapping and adopted by big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull and the team, would be the a minister for non-caring evil union relations, demanding the Socialist Party dissociate itself from such evil. And in an interview this week, its would-be minister Brendan Nocomo didn't quite dissociate itself, but didn't quite associate itself either. We represent workers, he boasted, after discussing the needs of caring employers. Well, I did paraphrase the last bit to praise his long circumnavigation of the question. Poor Eric and McCadio and the whole Malcolm team can't believe that one side of the industrial relations equation could control and determine government policy. Related to this, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review yesterday released its annual Filthy Richest of the Filthy Rich list. And congratulations to Donald Trample the Poor's very, very close friend, Anthony Heaser Pratt. Indeed, the magazine cover kicker line, Donald Trample the Poor is making cardboard king Anthony Heaser Pratt even richer. Birds of a feather, but related to? Well, yes. What do John Setker and True Blue Aussie's richest man have in common? It's obvious. The same silk who helped the evil union officials have their case withdrawn also represented Anthony's sadly departed dad, Big Dick, on all those cartel and ripping off trillions charges, ensuring the case never got to trial before Big Dick left, the, uh, Big Dick left this world, presumably in a cardboard box. We asked Anthony what he put his filthy riches down to, or to which, to be correct, but let's not get pedantic. Well, Dad slept with Mum. Uh, yes, but what's that got to do with it? That's it. Lucky for Anthony that Big Dick did sleep with Mum that night. In the It's Hard to Believe department, among our brave young men and women in uniform trained killers, there were 265 reported sexual misconduct charges in the past year, and we can assume there were probably more than a few unreported. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that those whose occupation is to kill people would have a nasty bone in their bodies, would have the slightest inclination to assault and hurt people, to bully, to seek power over. After all, we're talking about the cream of True Blue Aussie cannon fodder youth. And one of them, a former decorated train killer called Hasty, lived up to his name and made life a little more comfortable for Malcolm and the team, especially the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers, as he exposed a Chinese filthy rich person for doing something or other the US either told him about in his role as head of a security committee, which in this case leaked from the top. Perfect timing for which Julie must have rushed round with a bottle of champers to thank him profusely. In a week when a former ambassador to China had called for Malcolm to sack her because of the damage she was doing to True Blue Aussie China relations.
following which she met her Chinese counterpart at a regional meeting and said they were like brother and sister. So warm was their relationship. And he said the atmosphere was frigid, cold as ice. And given one of the criticisms was she hadn't visited China in eons, it was odds on she'd be desperate for an invite. Invite me. Come on, come on, please. Invite me, please, please. So she said she'd been invited. And he said she hadn't. And amid all this, we can but assume poor Julie also had to explain to the US of how ex-train killer Hasty had been so hasty with confidential information. But Julie displayed her diplomatic skills when a Netherlands report claimed the missile which brought down that Malaysian flight over a war zone was Russian. And Julie said this could have severe consequences for Russia from Trublawasi. So imagine how they'll be shaking in their boots in the Kremlin as they rush to their world atlases. What does it start with, Piotr Ilyich? A, A, A. Speaking of Piotr Ilyich, perhaps we could ban Russian ballet companies visiting Trublowozzi. That'd show them. Now to one of our specialties, a couple of bad, bad joke pieces. Notice the partner of new make developers, Rich Lord Mayor, whose name is Cap, doesn't call himself Cap. He has a different second name. And I guess given his name is Andrew, that's understandable. And arising from the cyclist lobby calling for technology to ban drivers' phones operating while the vehicle is in motion, it was reported that road deaths due to phone use are expected to increase by 30% over the next few years, leading us to the obvious very, very bad joke, it will mean their number is up. Right, back to the normal nonsense. In his vital community role, dictating what we all must think, sorry, a badly phrased, expressing how we all think, Lord Rupert of Wapping has found a social disaster almost as evil as evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. The Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Sounds benign, doesn't it? But anything but. No, this perfidious, untrublewazzy collection of legal misfits has the audacity to apply the law, the law, to sensible decisions in the interest of protecting us from invaders fleeing our invasions of their countries by our warm, humane protector, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Duffer, who has himself expressed his frustration at these misfits applying the law to his decisions. You can't imagine how angry this makes them on our behalf. Evil aliens. Okay, some of them, perhaps most, may have come here as toddlers, but they are so evil they deserve to be deported back to where they have no idea they came from or no idea about where they toddled off from. And this bloody tribunal overrules poor Peter and allows them to remain here with their families, taking cruel advantage of our goodness. And worse, past tribunal members are being re-employed as assessors of these cases, back where they stuffed up in the first place on huge salaries at public expense, public funds employed to destroy society as we know it. If we had any doubts about Lord Rupert's anger at this injustice, this improper use of the law, Lord Rupert and Pete, for that matter, have been backed up by no less responsible a great troublewazzy as former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses himself. All doubts expunged. No embellishment here, listener, direct quote. 
the judiciary at every level seems more determined to encroach on what was traditionally the role of the executive government. The government's job is to keep us safe, to get rid of undesirable people who were in our midst and did bad things but don't have the right to stay here. A slight break just here to complain that Tiny meets all the criteria except the don't have the right to stay bit, unless we can prove otherwise, and uh, it's got to be worth a try. Right, but don't have the right to stay here, and it is just awful when the AAT seems to bend over backwards to find in favour of people who are ripping us off. One of the reasons people are so frustrated is because they elect governments to get on with things, whether it is the Senate and whether it is the courts or the tribunals, are always seeming to get in the way of what the government was elected to do. So finally, apart from the grammatical nonsense of that last bit, and an elaboration of how people who have been here most of their lives are ripping us off wouldn't have hurt, a couple of points, Tiny. You might have noticed it, but the Senate is, wait for it, wait for it, sit down, sit down, elected. And can we suggest you pop into the parliamentary library and brush up on the separation of powers bit? Good morning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. G'day, Humphrey. We're all going well. Yes, good. And uh, you've got a, a fabulous uh, thing to talk to us today about. Well, we, we've got another, another one of those fabulous things that uh, Dr. Karl Marx has left to us. Uh, we've been talking about the 200th anniversary which was of his birth, which was the 5th, and uh, you know, a couple of well delightful surprise presents turned up. Uh, as you know, I was in Melbourne to enjoy, and that's a word I really want to use for it, the march of 120,000 people <laughs> for change the rules, break the bad laws, change the rules. It was, it was just marvellous to be there. Uh, it was. Um, so that was the first great present. And also, The Economist, you know, which has now been going for a couple of hundred years, you know, the mainstream journal, covered up with a front line and a two-page story inside headed why, um, why Marx was right. <laughs> you know. Anyway, I've sent that down to you, I think, and you can put that up and send that around. But, I mean, that's, worth, that's certainly worth having a look at to cheer ourselves up. But today, uh, I want to go on and say something about... Uh, we've been progressing more or less chronologically through a number of Marx's... Um, you know, of the various wonderful things that uh, he had produced. And we got his literary works, effectively. Oh, his literary works. Yeah, well, those political literary works, because he, he would never have really drawn a distinction, would he, between everything he did was, in a real sense, political in the way in which he was criticising the overwhelming power of the capitalist system in those days. And the one I want to look at today is um, the the 18th Brumaire of Louis-Napoleon. Now, if you don't know any French history, you might wonder, uh, A, what the 18th Brumaire was. And to do that, we need to go back to the French Revolution of the 1790s because one of the things they did in trying to change the entire world 
was to introduce a new system of organising the days of uh, the days of the week and the month, um, and so they renamed everything. Hmm. And Brumaire uh, is round about October, November, um, and it comes from the French word broom, which which is for the kind of fog and the mist that come around in the autumnal time of the year over there. So that's how we get the, the that's how we get the 18th Brumaire. 18th is is the date of the, of, the, of that particular month that they introduced. But the historical significance of it is that on the um, 9th of November, 1799, that's when Napoleon I made his real move to take power. Uh, four years later, he declares himself to be the new emperor. Uh, and th- why is this significant for Marx in the 1850s? Well, it's because Napoleon's nephew, Louis Napoleon, does much the same thing, although without any of the military victories that, of course, um, his very grand uncle had uh, had managed to do to establish his power in the system. So on the 2nd of December, 1851, Louis Napoleon um, carries out his own kind of coup d'etat that comes out of the French revolutions of 1848 onwards. And what Marx and Engels are then concerned about, because when they write the Communist Manifesto, they're all absolutely convinced that the revolution's coming, everything is going to be different, um, capitalism's going to come to an end, and, you know, and, and indeed the Communist Manifesto will be put more or less into effect in a fairly short space of time. And in a way, this is really exciting because what Marx is doing is writing about real things at, as they're happening. Isn't he? I mean, it's oh, like... Oh, it is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. This is journalism. Well, I mean, one of the questions you could ask is, in what sense could you describe this as, as, a, as a historical work? Now, for the bourgeoisie, history is only history when it's, when it's safely dead and buried. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It can't threaten them anymore. So they say, oh, you can't actually be objective and for another 200 years. You've got to wait and see how it all turns out. Well, for Marx, of course... History is the past, the present, into the future. It isn't divided up in that chronological sense. And for him, he he and Engels bring what they call a scientific view to this, and they get beneath the appearances, and they look at the driving forces underneath. And any journalist could have written any kind of story about what was going on on a a day-by-day basis. And that in itself... Is not particularly hard. What Marx did was to say, why is this happening? How is it happening? What are the great social forces at work? And there we'll get to in a minute and say, well, of course, the great social forces at work were the nature of the French economy and the role of the smallholder in in all of French society, which had been very important in the 18th century with with the revolution there. And it continued to be, and in some ways we see in France today, one of the reasons why they resisted um, the McDonaldization of, of their society is because of the place of the small farmer, of, of being able to get fresh food. Um, uh, you know, the, you know the, the minor place that supermarkets have played in French society, even in the, even in the last 20 or 30 years. So that element... Mark sees this and then he tries to make sense of it because he's prepared to face up to the fact that his hopes 
before the revolution aren't going to happen. So what do you have to do if you have a scientific view of the world? You have to look at what are the sources of counter-revolution. And that's what he sets out to do in the 18th Premier. And that's really why it's so important. Um, And people who... I mean, even people around the left who may not have read the 18th Premier will certainly be familiar with with some of the of the key ideas in it that just keep on being turned over in people's conversation. And if I just begin with the opening sentence, Hegel remarks somewhere that all facts and personages of great importance in world history occur twice, as it were. He forgot to add, the first time as tragedy the second as farce. And that contrast between the first as tragedy and the second as farce is something that just keeps on being requoted over all of this. Now, the other thing that Mark then goes on to say is something else that, you know, that is that is widely referred to. And he he's talking about the conflict between our freedom to do things and all of all of the controls and the circumstances under which we have to fight. And he says, we make our own history, but we don't make it just as we please. We don't make it under circumstances chosen by ourselves, but under circumstances directly encountered and given and transmitted from the past. Uh, And they're two very important lessons, I think, uh, to see that, of course, we can change the world. But we can't change the world just because we wake up one morning and think, oh, we'll have a bright idea. Wouldn't it be nice if the world was like this? It's not a clean slate. Yeah, you have to actually look and find out how it is now. And that's the difference between having a scientific view towards socialism and a simply utopian view. Um, All socialists are utopian in the sense that we want a much better world. But when we are also scientific, in which we look at where are we now how, how might we go from where we are to where we want to be? And that's certainly one of the, one of the key bits that Marx is putting forward in the 18th Premier. In fact, it'd almost be uh, right to say that it's, it's better to be, uh, it's trying to be better rather than to be right or, um, you know what I mean? Like uh, that, that it's, it's uh, action and struggle is, is key to this. And, you know, and, and, and the action is there and the struggle is there. But as you see with Marx throughout works like the 18th Premier, the struggle is also an intellectual political struggle. Uh, you have to struggle to get over your own prejudices. And their prejudice, of course, was that, oh, everything was going to go marvellously out of 1848. Um, and they realised then, of course, that that's not what happened. And they have to struggle with themselves... Uh, as we all do when things don't go the way we thought they were going to in, in political terms. And um, we can go on pretending that, oh, everything's the way we said it was going to be, or we can face up to them and say, no, we were wrong about that, and we've got to try and find out why. Uh, and one of the reasons, of course, that Marx points to uh, very early on in the 18th primary says something else, which is a widespread uh, kind of... Well, there's not quite a cliche, but a very important statement that does circulate around the left. And he says, and I quote again, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. You know, and he's saying 
just when we want to overthrow the world, just when we want to think we're going to make it everything completely different, that's when the past comes up. And we try and make out what we're doing into the future, he says, look as if it's respectable by clothing it in the garb of, of some previous revolution, uh, of going back to the past. And so he recognises that in moving forward, we're also confronted by the spectre of the past and we have to accept that that is there and we have to struggle against that as well. So, and that leads, of course, into the, into the what I suppose is really the key aspect, the, you know, the biggest idea, I think, that on the left we still can benefit from the 18th Brumaire and that is the notion of class consciousness. Yeah, this Where is terrific. This is just How terrific. Build it? I mean, this is, you suggesting, I mean, this is really so important um, when people today talk about, oh, is there still a working class? You know, what do you mean by class? Are there classes? You know, even the poor old ABC has had to try to have a discussion <laughs> about whether there's class in Australia. They didn't get very far. because <laughs> they have no idea what class is. But, I mean, it's, in, it, it's again, it's worth paying attention to the fact that the ABC at this moment, because of all of the things that are going on here and around the world, with the nature of capitalism, is that they thought that it was worth raising this question again. Uh, it's an indication of of how much of the discontent is there and how they're trying to understand it. And indeed, of course, we jump back to the very beginning. You could you could imagine how the Business Council was responding to the march on Wednesday, the ninth of uh, the ninth of May, thinking, "God, how do we deal with this?" I'd also have to say the bloody the, the AB. The ALP leadership was probably panicking as well. Uh, all these people out there getting out of control. We don't want that, thank you very much. We want them under control. Uh, anyway, back to class and the role of the peasantry. Um, now, while it's talking about a class which we could pretty much say doesn't exist in Australia, um, what does it tell us for working class activists? Now, there's a passage there that um, it's really too long to read out as one single passage. Uh, but I suggest that people, you can usually go online and, you know, and all of the Marx writings are up there on the Marx archive. So, so I suggest that you know, anyone is really concerned about this. And what he's concerned to show is something that, you know, again, people talk about, the difference between a class in itself and a class for itself. Uh, and the difference, of course, in one sense, is whether there is class consciousness. You can have a class as a thing, and then you have a class as something that is self-conscious of its role and what it has to do to defend itself and to make the best circumstances for all all of humankind into the future. Uh, and that's the difference between class in itself and class for itself. Now, when he's talking about the French peasants, he says, well, there they are. They, they live in a hostile relationship to the landowners and the, you know, and the big and the rich and the powerful, um, and they all share the same social economic relationships. And in that sense, it means they are a class, they are a class in itself. But because they're isolated... They have no national connections. They have no political organisation of their own, no trade unions, as we might say. They are not a class for itself. Uh, 
Yet they, in this nature of the revolution that took place in the 1850s, they are given the vote. Um, there is this system in which everyone's now going to get a vote to say who is going to be the president and then he becomes the emperor. Um, so without any political organisation, how do they defend themselves? How do they see what, who is going to be the defender of their particular interests? And Marx now makes a very, very important point. He says, these people who are unrepresented in, any, uh, in their own way then look for someone powerful to be the person who they believe and hope is going to protect them from all of their enemies. And it is out of this you know, real conflict between the fact that they have no political power they therefore think, oh, the only thing we can do, therefore, is to get someone who is very powerful, who might come along and do the things that we would like to, uh, to be done in our society. And we've seen that, again, in, you know, but it happens all the time. I mean, not all the oh, time. It, it happens here. I mean, that's what's going on here at the moment. So what they do, what you're saying is that he points out that they get a representative who isn't a representative. Well, certainly. Certainly that. Uh, but here, we at least have a situation where everybody, in some sense or other, is organised into various community organisations. They may be trade unions, which are a declining bit, or even the Labor Party, which is even more a declining entity. Um, but there are political organisations of various kinds. The French peasants didn't have any of that. Um, Afterwards, they did. You know, they, they began by the end of the 19th century to develop their own political organisations. But at this point, they were completely without any, any organisation whatsoever. So along comes the man on horseback um, and says, I will lead you, I will protect you. They say, oh, thank you very much. And that, I mean, that had happened with Napoleon I in the first place. And, um, you, you know, so that this is this connection. Uh, we've seen it recently in Thailand. We've seen it in Turkey. Um, you know, and it's, 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 I mean, I don't think it's an immediate problem that, you know, that we have the same situation. But what Marx is saying there is when people aren't organised and, and they're still involved, they're still, you know, in a purely um, sort of technical sense allowed to participate in the outward forms of the political life of the society, then they have to. They still have to come to. They still have to decide who they're going to vote for, um, and it's out of that. And we have to draw back and think, as you were doing, how does this relate to us? And the real relationship is, where is their class consciousness? How did that come together? And there, I think, we can see a very important connection to what's been happening in countries like Australia for the last thirty years. And if we go back to the nineteenth century again. The English working class, at the same time that Marx is writing, were in a very different situation. There'd been the Chartist movement, there'd been the Grand Confederation of Trade Unions that had been formed in the 1830s. There were particular trade unions operating. Um, there was you know, a, a developing political sense amongst the working people. There was a sense of a class for itself. And that continued to develop in England and it certainly continued to develop out here in Australia. Now, what's happened in the... And that happened, Marx says. Uh, not, it didn't just fall out of the sky. It happened because of the needs of the capitalist class. 
the capitalists needed large numbers of people to be brought together, partly in urban centres and then in huge factories, so that people no longer were, as Marx says about the French peasants, no more than potatoes in a sack. Workers in the factories learnt to work together to do the jobs that they were employed for, and in learning to work together, they learned to know each other, to develop political trust in each other, to develop what we would call class solidarity. Uh, and that was the huge difference that the capitalist system brought. It was one of the ways in which Marx says, well, yeah, I mean, the capitalist system does all sorts of bad things, but in the process of doing them, in order to do them, it has to do things that produce, as he says, their own grave diggers. And that's what they're doing. Now, what we've seen in Australia and many parts of the world in the last 30 years is that that pattern of work, of bringing large numbers of people together across a lifetime, so they get to know each other, they get to trust each other, they build up the basis for class consciousness, that has been under attack. Uh, under attack partly, or largely, one might say, for economic reasons. Mm. But the capitalist doesn't want that anymore. That is not profitable. Uh, what you want now is for the workers to be there just in time. Yeah, part-time, temporary, casual, yeah. uh, casual patterns of employment. Casual, temporary, part-time. So you're scurrying from one job to another. You, you know you're not going to be there for very... You know, I mean, you, even if you've got a job for three years, you've got a contract, well, you know, who, you gonna, who knows where you're going to be at the end of the three years. And that has really eaten into that class consciousness, the class for itself. Um, and we have to face up to that. We have to see that that material basis, it's not just that people have got bad ideas in their heads or they used to have good ideas and, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and somewhere or other they, you know, those, those very good ideas have been replaced by other ideas. Um, it's, because, it's also because of the real needs of where capitalism is, what it is now trying to do in order to survive itself economically. Um, so that's, that's another important part of it. And very quickly now, because we are, I know, running out of time. Yeah, and there's this important bit at the end. The important bit about how do you understand what is the role of an intellectual in this situation? And Marx says, well, look, let's take the example of a petty bourgeois intellectual who politically represents what you know he calls all the shopkeepers. Uh, uh, Marx says, a, a petty bourgeois intellectual is not somebody who is really in love with shopkeepers. He may despise them. The difference is that in his thinking, he doesn't get any further than they get in their practical needs. And that's a very subtle connection. It's not that you're in the pay of the shopkeepers. It's not that your father was a shopkeeper. None of that sociological stuff. It is, as Mark says, there's another connection. If you don't think beyond the way in which the petty bourgeois have to act, then, then you're a petty bourgeois intellectual. And this leads to another question. How does Marx become a proletarian intellectual? Because he's not born into the proletariat. Far from it. So, and the answer there is the same. He becomes a proletarian intellectual, not by getting a job in a factory, but being capable of thinking what are, the, what are the long-term and the immediate needs of the proletariat. It's the connection between the needs of the class 
and how he understands the world. And what he's doing in works like the Communist Manifesto and in the 18th Brumaire and massively when he comes to write all the volumes of Das Kapital, he is putting himself in the position of what are the long-term needs of this other class, this proletariat. Uh, and it's that connection, that role of where the intellectual can take this place within uh, within a capitalist society, irrespective of, of, of which particular class we might come from. Because we know plenty of people who come out of the working class and end up as the enemy of the working class. Yeah, we have to finish uh, it there, Humphrey, I'm We afraid. have to do indeed. But we'll be back in four weeks' time and we'll have a look at the base and the superstructure. <laughs> Good okay. on you. Thanks, All mate. Right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast today. Don't forget that at 3pm to 5.30pm on uh, commemorating National Sorry Day, Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, uh, there's going to be a, 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 a guest speakers. Uncle Jack Charles is going to be there. Music, Kutcher Edwards and others and dancers. It's going to be a great time. Uh, also at 12 at uh, Walker Street, Northcote, uh, housing the state, there's a demonstration against public housing renewal or sell-off as it's really called. Coming up next is uh, Asia-Pacific Currents. We'll go out with uh, Bart Willoughby Band, Proud.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.